Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Is it a strange thing not to be particularly fond of your own first name? I often wonder whether there are others who dislike their name the way I do, who feel that their name doesn't fit them somehow. I was called Nula after my ma, and I sometimes think it would have been better if the name had been left behind with her generation. The name Nula has been around since the 13th century, but perhaps around 1945, the Irish authorities could have enforced a moratorium on its use. I mean no disrespect to my ma, Nula Senior, nor to all the other Nulas out there, but I just can't seem to warm to the name. For a start, I pronounce it incorrectly, despite my grasp of Gaelge. I live in Galway, but I'm from Dublin originally, and we dubs completely ignore the Ua, that neat diphthong wedged in the centre of the word. Instead of saying Nula, we say Nula, to rhyme with hula, as in hula hoop, as I often need to explain to non-Irish people. In the mouth of a certain type of Irish speaker, my name becomes a delicious Nula, and when it's said like that by a native speaker from Connemara or West Kerry, even I can love my name. In Germany and Switzerland, where I worked for a time in my late teens, my name provoked derisive sniggers. The natives equated the sound of Nula with the German word Null, meaning zero, naught, or even more pejoratively when used about people, a dead loss. Nice. In fact, the name as it stands does mean absolutely zero, naught and nothing. Nula is a short or pet form of the prettier, more evocative name Fenula, which translates as fair-shouldered one. Fenula is a name that conjures up to my mind a pearl-skinned, powerful Celtic goddess, the kind of woman who knows exactly who she is and what she's at. Fenula is an amalgam of two distinctly separate words, fion meaning white and gula meaning shoulder. In our modern Kaijonized spelling of Irish, the G in gula has been elided, leaving me with a meaningless cluster of letters as a first name. I am neither a fion nor a gula, but a nula, a senseless admixture of a word. In primary school, when we study the origins of our names, I was told my namesake, Fanula Nichrohor, was a princess of Connacht. So far, so pleasing. But when we got into the grit, great hilarity was extracted from the meaningless nature of the word Nula. Even funnier, to some in my class, was the fact that the anglicisations of my name included the gems Nappy, Nobla and Penelope or Penny. I quite liked the fact that Penny was one of the English forms of my name, but my classmates neither noticed nor cared. Nobla, they hooted with glee. From time to time at home, my da used Nobla as a term of endearment for both of his nulas, my ma and me, leaving neither of us particularly pleased. After learning about my royal lineage, I changed my name to Fanula and was very vocal about it but my family couldn't get with this momentous moment. They would forget I was now Fanula, Celtic goddess and princess of Connacht, and call out, Nula, dinner's ready, or Nula, bed now. It's Fanula, I would roar angrily. Didn't they know who I was? 
When I was growing up, I didn't find any clever, beautiful, spirited, fictional heroines called Nuala. She didn't feature in books or films or sweet love songs. When I was nine, my ma and I took a lift in radio producer Nuala O'Connor's car and it tickled us that there were three Nuala O'Connors driving along together. What were the odds? Later, I encountered other brilliant, fascinating Nuala's in real life, among them the writers Nuala Nicónal and Nuala Ofuelon. And recently I read two separate novels with a Nuala as heroine, fantastically feisty women, and it was an odd, uplifting experience to witness those Nuala's strut their stuff while owning their names with pride. More often Nuala has been a joke name. Phoenix magazine chose it for their satirical Irish wildlife series as the perfect name for lumpy, desperate middle-aged women who were half mad. In the West Dublin of my teens, telling someone they were a Nuala Mooney meant they were the greatest kind of Egypt going. And, of course, Frank Kelly chose the name for his parody of The Twelve Days of Christmas. More times than I care to remember, I've had versions of Kelly's lines bleated at me. Nola, you dirty Jezebel, you have scandalised my mother. In more recent comedy, we have the trio simply called the Nolas, the name itself being intrinsically hilarious, apparently. But it's never been funny to me as an actual Nola. I may have confessed that I don't love my name, but I'm stuck with it, of course. And after 50 years of answering to, enduring and explaining Nola, it strikes me that maybe I need to spend the next 50 cherishing and celebrating it. I am, after all, Nulani Krohor, a direct descendant, surely, of a princess of Connacht. I love you from the bottom of my pencil case songs I write and sing Love you because you put me in my right place Irish people interested in our parliamentary history while we were linked with Britain often have a slight memory of Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger. A man of principle, undoubtedly, except that his principles led him to resign as Prime Minister in 1802, over the single issue of Catholic emancipation. Roman Catholics had had rights to education and property since the 1780s, but Pitt had pledged political emancipation following the Act of Union of 1800. Unable to deliver it due to King George's belief that it would violate his coronation oath, Pitt resigned. Imagine resigning because you renege on a political promise. What a guy. But there's a reason to regard young William, his father, also William, had also been Prime Minister, with less than admiration, if not exactly to spit on his impressive grave. He was the man who invented income tax in 1799. A tax on income had been debated as far back as 1700, when citizens were still assessed for tax on their male and female servants, their carriages and their horses. So by definition, such tax was paid only by the comfortably off, right up to the obscenely wealthy, of whom there were few. 
Gaps in the Exchequer were filled from 1696 by the window tax, signs of which can still be seen in houses from the time as people rushed to cut their liability, filling in their windows at the expense of both comfort and health. To invade a man's privacy by forcing him to disclose his income, you see, was not to be contemplated. It would be an appalling violation of his civil rights. But then along came a jumped-up little self-made man across the Channel, Napoleon Bonaparte, with notions above his station, like creating himself Emperor of France and prepared to go to war for the aggrandizement of that empire. And by 1799 he'd been doing so well at it that coffers across Europe, Russia and especially Britain, were dangerously empty. So Pitt went back in some desperation to the notion of a tax on income. The government sold it on the idea of its being a badge of patriotic duty to defeat Boney, and it worked. No longer was it believed that such a tax would cause a revolution. Anyone with an annual income of £200 upwards would pay tax at a rate of 10%. An income of between 60 and 200 a year would be taxed on a sliding scale between 1 and 10%. Below that threshold, you were tax-free. £60 in 1799 would have been worth about 9000 in today's money. And interestingly, proving that there's nothing new under the sun, our own tax incentive for those donating works of art to the state had a precedent under that original Westminster legislation. Works of art in private collections were tax-exempt. Three years later, the Peace of Amiens seemed to have finished the French threat. And following Pitt's resignation over Catholic emancipation, the new Prime Minister Addington immediately abolished the tax. That didn't last long, because peace didn't last long either, when Napoleon escaped from Elba. But when Arthur, Duke of Wellington, finally defeated Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815, income tax was once again abolished. Interestingly, it was Wellington as Prime Minister who finally delivered Catholic emancipation in 1829, an achievement not often acknowledged in Ireland. The abolition was, of course, too good to last, and in the budget of 1842, Prime Minister Robert Peel, having won the 1841 election, reimposed income tax at a rate of 3%. Hands up who'd settle for that. The US came even later to income tax, and again it was war what did it. In 1861, Abraham Lincoln, drowning in debt due to the cost of the Civil War, imposed a tax on income of 3% for those with an income of more than $800, the equivalent of roughly $25,000 today. In 1894, that was down to 2%, but only for incomes of 4000 or more annually. During World War II, mind you, Americans were paying up to a crushing 90% in income tax. Going back further east and further in time, tax resistance was even fiercer. In the year 10 AD, the Emperor Wang Mang of China's Jin Dynasty introduced a 10% income tax, only to find himself overthrown, although it did take more than 20 years. This led to what history regards as the magnificence of the Han dynasty in China. And good old Henry II, who did for Thomas a Becket in 1170, 
and had acceded to Dermot McMurray's invitation in 1172 to give him a bit of a hand in his battle for Leinster's supremacy against Ireland's then High King Rory O'Connor, some would say the start of all our problems, imposed the interestingly named Saladin Tithe in 1188. He was still currying favour with both God and the Pope for that infamous murder of Becket, and the tithe, 10% of all incomes and properties, was to finance the Third Crusade to the Holy Land, hence its name. But at least you could get out of that one by volunteering to go on the crusade. Would something like that work, one wonders, with the revenue commissioners? Maybe a pilgrimage to Lourdes? I feel so good <laughs> Come payday I think of all the things I'm gonna buy When I pick up my pay Don't you know But then they hand me The Lookout Neither wind nor rain would stop him lying in wait on the garden wall an hour or more till he spotted the yellow school bus at the top of the road. When he heard us laughing, shouting, squabbling, he'd jump barking to the gravel and run to gather his flock of five. The evening he arrived in the kitchen the runt from our uncle's best collie. He had peed on the tiles, but never again until near the end when his legs wouldn't carry him to the back door, long after he'd taught us all he knew about love that waits in the wind and rain. My nephew explores the world as I watch. He is transfixed by the movements of swans and cygnets on the canal because at 18 months those sights are new. Yesterday we watched a cob storm across the water, wings flared, hissing and screaming to scare away a rogue drake. For a moment I saw things through my nephew's eyes. As we resumed our journey, I returned to the role of his protector for the afternoon. But my perspective had changed, my senses recalibrated by everyday scenes. I get to live vicariously through his field of vision. He goes to bed for the night at 6.30 and the baby monitor affords glimpses of his world. He shrieks at first, then coos and calms himself for sleep. The bars of the cot imprison his image on the screen, tumbling through slumber. My eyes follow this intrigue while he thrashes about unawares. At times he can be seen gazing, as if staring at something in the darkness. My sister is accustomed to these pictures by now, but to me they seem like a magic act. Nothing stirs for an hour and then he bursts into life, rolling from side to side, tossing his blanket before reappearing upright, his back against the bars. He holds this pose for a moment, then tumbles again, 
breaking the spell. Watching him walk is still a novelty act for me. He steps confidently through the front door at my parents' house, eager to reach the kitchen. What might appear like hesitation is disguised fascination. He stops only to look up at the faces greeting him. Their giddy expressions and childlike thrills must seem strange to him, but his initial confusion quickly gives way. One by one, he catches the voices of Granny and Grandad. Then he makes for the kitchen. All ground floor presses have been conquered now that he's grown tall enough to grasp each handle. The fridge door is a magnet. Characters from The Simpsons catch his eye. But these are old moves, and he runs through them as if they form part of an elaborate ruse. Every so often, he looks right, a glance that betrays him. The utility room now holds greater appeal. Tumble dryers and washing machines are his latest fascination. He stares into the drum of each appliance, and the glass doors capture his reflection, a version of himself that he doesn't recognise. One week, he managed to halt a wash before the end of its cycle. Only when I tried to prise the lock did we realise. The door would not budge. This boy has changed our interior worlds. His physical presence brings a new dimension to the life of every house he visits. We move and act and talk with him in mind. Our worries are wiped away when he walks into the room. Each of us tries to comprehend life on his level. Granny forgets her arthritic pain for a while, elated to have him sitting on her knee. He takes pride of place in her lap. All of our eggs fade. He commands full attention, and we connect, in whatever way. I wait in the hall and whistle to distract him, my face hidden behind the door jamb. He smiles whenever I steal a peek. Instinct remains his ultimate guide, a circular path leading to Mammy. As he passes through a new zone, baby days behind him, he toddles forward. With a fit of giggles, he fills the house, hitting the high notes. But his cries are more pained. He senses change more acutely, especially when his mother leaves the room. His mind is growing along established lines, and he gets upset when they alter. An unhappy child makes each of us unhappy in our own way. So we rush to comfort him, the same way we mimic his laughter, responding to those basic human calls. Arms upstretched, he seeks comfort from his elders. With glee, Grandad obliges. My nephew responds with pure delight, playing games of peekaboo. Most days he gets great fun from an empty plastic bottle, held aloft like a chalice each hand grasping the green container. Every so often he stops to take a sip. Head tilted, he bites into the cap before offering it up. Grandad has a swig and makes a glugging sound. Oh, laffy, laffy, James, says Granny, all of them happy in cahoots. I look to my nephew, nearing two, almost at the end of his first cognitive stage. His world is changing, day by day, while my days meld into each other. When he's my age, he will have no memory of how he thrilled his uncle. He can sleep straight through for twelve hours, sometimes stock still, sometimes moving wildly. 
That was me once upon a time. Was I carefree? Was my sleep as sweet? It doesn't matter. The child I see before me reflects a living surface. He moves now in this present, deaf to all other tenses. I hear him calling me into his moment. It's an evening late in July 1968 and from an open window the sound of Des O'Connor singing I Pretend is oozing along the gardens of Abbeylands. I'm cycling back from some escapade out the mill road, some search for adventure that has inevitably had to be satisfied by the promise of tomorrow. On the wall between our garden and next door's garden two women are sitting, chatting in the still warm sunshine of that summer twilight. One is a tall woman, the other is shorter. The first is our neighbour, Mrs O'Connell, the second is my mother. Our garden is mostly lawn with flower beds around the perimeter. O'Connell's garden is filled with hundreds of different varieties of flowers. My mother is an occasional gardener. Mrs O'Connell is, to use her own word, an avid gardener. Both women are smoking. Mrs O'Connell draws slowly and deeply on her cigarette with all the ease and practice of a lifetime. My mother puffs and exhales with the unease of a recent convert. As with their gardening, one is an avid smoker, the other is an occasional accomplice. This moment is frozen in my memory because it comes from a time ten years after we first moved to 1061 Abbeylands, when my mother and Mrs O'Connell have reached an agreement. For a decade they have referred to each other through the most intimate and harrowing of times and conversations as Mrs O'Connell and Mrs McKenna. But in recent weeks there have been overtures. I'm not sure from which side to move on from the formality of Mrs. to the warmer informality of first names. Mrs. O'Connell is Bridget, but her husband calls her Bride. My mother's given name is Winifred, but she has always been Una. And so these two women have agreed to break a habit and liberate themselves from being the wives of men called O'Connell and McKenna and become their own women. The times, indeed, are a-changing. I dismount from my bike outside Kelly's gate, four doors down, and pretend to fiddle with the chain. But I'm watching the two women, sitting side by side on the low wall. And I'm taking in the moment. I don't yet know why, but I sense, even as a fifteen-year-old, that this image of recreation and comfort and ease will become important to me at some point in the future. I know that Tom O'Connell is down the river fishing. He too is an avid gardener, but fishing is his passion. And I know my father is in our back garden, earthing the potato drills. 
Perhaps the moment has an added significance because earlier in the day, my parents and Mr and Mrs O'Connell drove the mile or so out of Castle Dermot to Colstown Cemetery to choose their final resting places. Plots that lie side by side. Whether the urge to choose the grave sites came from the urge to use first names or whether the use of Christian names came from the talk of final resting places, I'm not sure. But one has been done and paid for and the other is underway. I stand and watch surreptitiously, see the small scribbles of cigarette smoke write briefly on the still summer air, hear the fading lines of music from that open window. Watch two women lost in a conversation that is theirs and theirs alone. And then I cycle the twenty yards to our house, swing in through the open gateway. The sound of the bicycle tyres on the gravel draws the attention of the two women from the other side of the lawn. They wave, and I wave back. The agreement on Christian names lasts a few weeks, but neither woman is comfortable with the arrangement and by summer's end they're back to the more familiar, more comfortable Mrs O'Connell and Mrs McKenna. And here I am again on a summery evening, standing now in Colstown Cemetery, reading the headstones on the adjacent plots, Bride O'Connell and Una McKenna. Reliving that moment from more than half a century ago and picturing the pair of them on the low garden wall. Antirinium, Aster, nasturtium, wallflower, rose and honeysuckle, growing all around them, already drawing them slowly back into the earth from which we all come and to which we all must in time return. Sitting here so lonely in the firelight Listening for a footstep on the stairs All I have to talk to is the moonlight Shining on an empty chair Nula O'Fallon on a bicycle on Brooklyn Bridge It's not just that I'm about to die, she regretted It's that every insight I gleaned will die with me. My years of intense reading, the years of learning how to live my life, learning how to allow myself find the courage to conquer demons of self-doubt, to coax my voice to speak and miraculously discover that my emotions resonated with so many others. Nule, this is how I always choose to envisage you in a wide-brim straw hat such as might be worn by a carefree spirit happily cycling for to relish whatever minor curiosities she might find to cherish in a 1950s village dressed at its best for fair day. With freshly cut flowers in your wicker basket You come freewheeling through crowds on Brooklyn Bridge, weaving about so wildly that we reach out our hands to grasp the handlebars of a high-saddled bone shaker and stop you careering into us, lost in blithe thought. We mistake you for just some eccentric New Yorker 
till you tilt back your oversized hat, totally at home, over 3,000 miles from home, your face breaking into a smile as you recognise old friends from another world, though you made every world seem your own. Laughing amid the teeming crowd, as if finding each other there was no less incurious than casually meeting by chance on Grafton Street, you simply say, so here we all are now, the lot of us. On Sunday Miscellany this morning, the writing on being called Nula by Nula O'Connor. The man who invented income tax was by Emer O'Kelly. The Lookout, a poem by Jane Clark. Nephew was by Brendan Coffey. Two Women on a Wall was by John McKenna. And Nula O'Fuelan on a Bicycle on Brooklyn Bridge was by Dermot Bolger. The music was Song for Whoever by The Beautiful South, After Taxes by Johnny Cash, the second movement from Mozart's Six Variations for Piano and Violin in G minor, performed by Arthur Grumio and Walter Kleen, Here for You by Neil Young, and I Pretend by Des O'Connor. Lorcan Clancy produced, and the broadcast coordinator was Willem McCartney, and the series producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.